I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nick Black, Professor of Health Services Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Dr. Black has written a perspective article on the current crisis in England's National Health Service. Dr. Black, you note in your article that the government has undertaken an administrative reorganization of the NHS, replacing administrative bodies that were led by non-clinical managers with what are called clinical commissioning groups led by general practitioners, and they're meant to be more effective in controlling spending on health care services. So was that change purely financial? No, it wasn't. I think the experience that most people would agree of the NHS since we created this separation of bodies that provided health care, hospitals and primary care centres, and those who purchased or commissioned services some 10, 15 years ago, the general consensus is that it has not been a great success in driving improvements in quality and productivity, largely because of a failure on the commissioning side, not being very effective. So one of the reasons the government was keen to make this change was it perceived that non-clinical managers leading commissioning had great difficulty in, if you like, controlling clinicians in the big providers in the hospitals. So there was a sort of imbalance of power and that one of the solutions, which is certainly going to be very interesting to see what happens, is that if you put clinicians on the other side of the table as well, amongst the commissioners, in this case the primary care doctors, physicians, the general practitioners, then you might get a more even playing field and that be a better opportunity for those commissioning services to really shape them and shake up and change the traditional ways that healthcare has been provided. At the same time, there may be some financial advantages, but it was more to get this sort of power balance in the negotiations between those who purchased or commissioned, those who provided. And there'd clearly be parallels with similar situations in the states between insurers and all payers and providers. The government also aims to increase competition by using more non-NHS healthcare providers. And I can imagine that that shift would be anathema to NHS believers. How's that been received? Well, you're absolutely right. The response has been pretty much along political ideological lines, as you suggest. The majority of NHS staff who would tend towards more sort of left-wing collectivist ideology were not at all keen on this, and much of the opposition over the last couple of years, the political opposition, was because of a fear of greater market forces, to see very much supported by those who feel that the only way you can run a health system and get high productivity and efficiency is by having an element of competition. There's a couple of ironies in it, though, because, of course, some of the biggest opponents have been the general practitioners, possibly what many people outside England, and in fact, even those within England, are unaware of, is that the general practitioners are not employed by the NHS. They're actually private organisations who have a contract with the NHS. So they've always been run on a sort of small business model. So there's a long tradition of having non-NHS healthcare providers. And the other thing is, it's not so much encouraging. We don't expect a huge involvement of large multinational corporations, and some may come in. It's much more going to be probably uh, voluntary organisations charities, not-for-profits, who will be coming in and providing a competitive alternative to the local NHS provider. 
Tell us about what may have been the most visible manifestation of the crisis, the inquiry into the Mid-Staffordshire NHS Foundation Trust that found what was called appalling care at one hospital. What was going on at that hospital? Yes, well, the Mid-Staff's experience has certainly been the trigger that has created the crisis, the turmoil which we are currently experiencing and have been over the last few months, although by itself we wouldn't be in crisis. It's other factors as well which we can talk about in a moment. But the Mid-Staffordshire was simply a small local district hospital running all the routine secondary care that you'd expect at such a hospital. Nothing special about it except that What clearly happened, there was a real failure of ensuring high-quality care, probably from about 2005 to 2009. The problems were very much in terms of the humanity of the care, the experience that patients received in lack of respect and dignity through an uncaring attitude developed in some of the wards, mostly Not surprisingly, I'm sure to most listeners, those wards dealing with care of the elderly, emergency admissions of such patients. It was then suggested, particularly by local people who used the hospital, that this was actually causing avoidable deaths. Now, it's not clear at all whether there were more avoidable deaths in the Mid-Staffordshire Hospital than you get, unfortunately, in any hospital in any country in the world. But the local people and the local press became convinced that patients and their relatives were suffering unnecessary deaths as well as inhumane care. And this led to a public inquiry that published in February this year, the France's report, named after the lawyer who carried out the inquiry. It was about two-year piece of work. And that really precipitated the government to make quite a few fairly immediate responses. So you write about those initiatives from the government, but you know that most of them are not supported by evidence or expert advice. So what should be the response to poor or unsafe care? Well, I think the clearly what Mid-Staffordshire showed was that in that hospital, and no doubt in others, I don't for a moment believe that the problems there are completely unique, they may have been more extreme than in other places, that there are problems in some hospitals I would like to see is much more considered measures of quality of care that look not only at safety, which is obviously important, and patients' experience, but also the effectiveness of the care in a much more measured way. I mean, the way that the NHS and the government looked at Mid-Staffordshire was to simply look at the hospital standardised mortality ratio, which has been used in this country by the government, by the NHS, for about seven, eight years. It's also used in other countries. Interestingly, not used in the States for very good reason that the measure shows no validity. It shows no correspondence with avoidable death. But I think the right way to respond would have been to improve the way use more sophisticated methods of measuring the quality of care in hospitals, which is going to be more complicated than a simple single measure because hospitals are, as everybody knows, extremely complex organisations. And even in somewhere like mid-staffs, although there were problems in some parts of the hospital, other parts of the hospital uh, were performing extremely well and getting very favourable patient responses. So to try and 
measure the quality of a hospital just with an overall single index or rating is not a sensible way when dealing with such a complicated organization. You're critical of all but one of the initiatives, and that is a review of patient safety in the NHS that's chaired by Don Berwick. What do you expect to come of that initiative? I suppose what I'd hope would come of it, uh, personally not in, I've been involved in one or two of the other initiatives, but no, I'm not involved in this one, but I have spoken to Don about it. First off, I believe and I hope that although he was asked by the British government to review patient safety, he will actually be looking at how do we review the quality of patient care, in other words, looking at effectiveness and experience as well as safety. And I'm sure that fits very comfortably with Don Berwick's personal views and the views of IHI and so on. I hope what will come out of it will be some sensible recommendations about the way in which quality of care, the governance of the quality of care. For example, one specific item that I hope does come out of it is that most of the boards of the trusts, which in England, the board of a trust is both slightly different from the states because it includes both the executive directors as well as the, what we'd call the non-executive directors. So at the moment, those boards who are ultimately responsible and were clearly the major culprit at mid-staffs, that it was the failure of the board to understand what was going on in their organization and take any action. And that's largely because the boards of our hospitals do not contain people, I think, with sufficient understanding and expertise in the management of quality. We do have some people who, for instance, have gone and spent a year with Don Berwick's organization in Boston and similar enterprises elsewhere. But that's really the exception. And the level, it's really very amateur, our approach to the management of quality. I don't think yet the NHS has understood that there is expertise to be learnt and used in both assessing the quality of care in a sophisticated, meaningful way and methods of improving the quality of care. So I'm hoping that his review will come out with clear recommendations about the need to review the composition of board members and ensure that there is a board member, a bit like, as you have in the States, a chief quality officer. We don't have that in England. What we have is a medical director or a nursing director who is expected to encompass that but usually without any training, which is why I say it is sort of goodwill and amateurism. But I hope that one of the main outcomes of what has been a very sad and troubling process mid-staffs, not just locally, but for the NHS as a whole, I hope one of the good things that will come out of it will be the recognition that we have to treat quality of care with the same expertise as we do the financial management of an organization. And at the moment, that is not the case in England. Looking at what may be another problem, you say that the way the NHS has been reorganized is going to impede attempts to achieve greater integration of services, both in healthcare itself and between healthcare and social services. If that's the case, what can be done to counteract that kind of action? This is quite a contentious issue because there are some who are, I mean, what's happening with the changes is there is greater fragmentation and separation so that obviously if you introduce as a key 
policy, as the government is, greater competition between providers. And whereas in the past you might have had a local NHS organisation that was responsible for providing a whole range of care, that could all now get broken up and be through the requirement for market competition and end up with contracts with different providers. And the fear is, the critics of that say, is, well, then patients will suffer because the care will not be so well integrated. Others, on the other hand, supporters of it, say, well, just a minute, you know, it's the integration isn't that wonderful at the moment, which I think is a fair comment, and you can still have good integration between the component parts, even if they are managed under different contracts. I think we're simply going to have to wait and see as to what unfolds. One answer has been to shift, interestingly, almost full circle for England, back for us to the 1970s and 80s, with considerable interest in organisations like Kaiser and Geisinger of bringing back together not only services from hospital and community and primary care, but also the commissioning or purchasing of those into whole HMOs or whole organizations that cover and are responsible for providing the integration. So ironically, we might actually go, the introduction of more competition might precipitate problems that will drive government policies right back to the beginning, which is an NHS as it looked in the early 1980s. You say another reason you're somewhat optimistic about the future of the NHS is that there are enterprising clinicians, managers, politicians who are working to re-engineer services on a local level. So if the solutions may be local, how much of a problem do you think it is that the overall structure is national and may have inadequate local input or buy-in tailoring it to local needs and resources? getting the balance right and that there's always the tendency despite the rhetoric particularly of politicians every new government certainly in England I suspect it's true of other countries always comes in with the rhetoric of we want to devolve power which is slightly strange because usually this is a political party that has been fighting to get power for years and the moment it gets it is it really going to say we're going to hand it all over to other people so that's not likely to happen. The point I'm making in the article, and I think it would be shared by many people, is that the sorts of radical change to the way we think about and provide healthcare will only come about through local innovation and initiative and enterprise. It can't be imposed from London into every corner of the country. So therefore, the role of the national bodies is to give up quite a lot of control, to be brave, to let go, encourage local people to let that enterprise, release that enterprise and that energy, even though there is a risk that you will end up with greater diversity variation between towns and cities and areas of the country by the nature of that policy. But it seems to me that that is the only way it's going to be possible to get the radical changes that are needed. They cannot be imposed. So the the role of the, the government is to create policies and a culture that encourages and supports local 
entrepreneurship and at the same time monitors carefully through regulatory means and keeps a very close eye on what is going on everywhere, tries not to interfere and only interferes where it's really concerned that, say, a local population is actually at risk of ending up with bad health care because the local entrepreneurship is actually creating services that are not as good as they need to be. Sir Michael Rollins has written a perspective article about NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, or now Care Excellence. How successful has NICE been in improving the quality of care? Well, I think NICE has been extremely successful in the sense of uh, getting a wide political and public acceptance that there is a need for explicit rationing and that that explicit rationing of care should be based as much as possible on rigorous scientific evidence of cost effectiveness, cost utility, and so on. And that has been a major achievement. It's obviously been achieved in the face of a certain amount of opposition, but I think now it is widely accepted and there are very few voices that would say, no, you should just leave it to each individual physician to make those implicit rationing decisions with each individual patient. In terms of how successful has it been in contributing to the improvements in the quality of care that have certainly happened over the last decade, there's no question of that. The outcomes of care, the health of the population and so on, has improved steadily year on year over the last decade, uh, despite all the problems that we've been talking about. What contribution has NICE made? Very difficult to tease it out from the others, but I think its biggest contribution is probably in changing people's mindsets to accepting that decisions about what care is provided in a publicly funded health system should be based on rigorous evidence and that it, given that there has to be some rationing, that it makes sense to take a fairly utilitarian approach and use the limited resources that are available in the most productive ways. So I think that has been its major achievement. If you go down to specifics and you can actually look at guidelines that and guidance that NICE has produced, uh, in some cases, it is well adhered to, but often locally may still be ignored by local purchasers or local providers. You say in your article that there's great public support for the NHS. What do the English like about it and what do they make of the current crisis? A very interesting question. A previous conservative politician said the NHS is the nearest thing that the English have to a religion, being a a fairly atheist population. I don't know that any other country putting on the Olympic Games would have had their healthcare system as part of the opening ceremony as a tribute to hospital care and healthcare. I'm sure it looked quite extraordinary outside these shores. What I can tell you, though, is that when that sequence came up and everybody here, like around the world, was watching it. Nobody here thought that for a moment. Everybody said, yes, that's absolutely right. If the ceremony is trying to capture what is essentially English, which is obviously what the whole ceremony show was about, then you would have to have the NHS. Although most of the population of England were not alive when it was created now, 1948, uh, and certainly didn't experience pre-NHS care. There is huge support for the concept 
concept of its fairness, that whoever you are, what determines the care you receive is your clinical need. It is not your, certainly not your wealth and income, and it's not your race, and it's not your sex, and it's not your age. And I suppose it's always said that one of the characteristics of the English is a sort of love of fair play. I've never been quite sure whether we're any stronger on that than than other nations. But that's what it's really about. It's about this love of fairness. And, And if everybody cannot have the very best care that you might get at the Cleveland Clinic or wherever, then in a sense, nobody should have it. We should all have the same. And it's about collectivity. It's about sharing. It's about we're all in it together. What do people think of the current crisis? Well, that depends very much, I think, on people's political persuasion. It's tied up very much with people's views of the economic crisis and the policies of austerity, which whilst in England, they're nothing like as severe as the policies having to be pursued in southern Europe. There are still public sector cuts. There are the NHS has gone from a period of financial growth every year to a period now of flat growth, no growth, or actually probably one percent, perhaps going to go up to two or three percent cuts a year. And this is unprecedented in the whole sixty five years of the NHS. It's always had growth. So I think what people are concerned about is tied up very much with their concerns about the economic crisis. It's very interesting that although we have a government that is committed to austerity measures of cuts in government spending and so on, only two areas of government spending have been explicitly protected from really major public spending cuts. A small one, international development, which is a very small amount of money, but a really big one, and that is health care. And that says a lot from a conservative government committed to small government cutting public spending. Even it knows that if it were to cut funding to the NHS, they would be voted out of office at the next election because the English public will not accept cuts to their beloved NHS, despite shortcomings of the care, despite any concerns, despite the appalling care that some patients suffered at Mid-Staffordshire, the answer is, well, put these things right. Don't throw away the NHS. Thank you, Dr. Black.